Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm here with the best sales presenter in the world, John Kaplan. Cap, get your seatbelt on today. I do, buddy. Ready to go. Excited. Well, Cap, our next guest is the former commanding officer of SEAL Team 2, where he led a 2,000-person special operations task force in southeastern Afghanistan. In addition to a 20-year career as a SEAL, Mike was a White House fellow, where he served two years as director of defense policy and strategy at the National Security Council. And he worked directly with both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. His military decorations include the Bronze Star for Valor in Combat in Iraq, a second Bronze Star for Valor in Combat in Afghanistan, and the Defense Superior Service Medal from the White House. In the business world, Mike has served as the chief of staff and COO at Bridgewater Associates. That's the world's largest and most successful hedge fund. Afterward, he was SVP and head of strategic operations at Cognizant Technology, which I think everyone knows is a giant $17 billion information technology services company. And currently, Mike is the chief operating officer at VMware and a member of the board of directors of a company named Immuta, which is a data uh, governance company. Mike holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government and received a bachelor's degree from Holy Cross. He lives in Westport, Connecticut with his wife and daughter. Last year, he wrote a book titled Never Enough, a Navy SEAL commander on the life of living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. Mike is also the founder of 1162 Foundation. It's a 501-3C nonprofit charitable organization. Mike named 1162 Foundation to help address the critical needs of families in special operations community, who have lost their heroic loved ones and spend every day trying to survive the best they can. Cap, please help me welcome a proven selfless leader, certainly a multi-talented person, Mike Hayes. Hey, Mike, uh, just an absolute honor to have you on. Uh, Really excited to talk about your book and, and, and all of your experiences. Thank you for what you do for military families and and uh, just thanks for carving out time for being with us. Nice to meet you too, by the way. 
Uh, pleasure's mine, whether I say, you know, John and John or Mac and Cap, uh, you, you know, your reputation clearly precedes yourself. Uh, you, you, thanks to the two of you for all the incredible positive impact that you've had creating value, uh, not just for organizations, but more importantly for people, for the a lot of people that you've, you know, mentored and created success for along the way. And, and I'm, I'm uh, really appreciative of the opportunity to learn from both of you today during this session. Hey, Mike, let's jump into your new book, Never Enough, in which you um, motivate readers to reach their full potential. And in the book, something really hit me that you said. It said, high-performing people inevitably live in two places at once. So we do our absolute best, and we also realize that our best is a moving target. That really resonated with me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, John, uh, it's. It, let me even start with the title of the book, Never Enough. You know, my my mom actually said, "Oh, that could be uh, interpreted as a real downer." You know, and it, it's depressing. I'm I'm never enough. Who's going to buy that book? Well, uh, I I said, you know, mom, I kind of agree with you, but uh, but on the other hand, it's not a backward looking statement. It's a forward looking statement. You know, in in life. Uh, there's always more impact that we can have. There's more help we can give to others. There's more that we can be as individuals. And, you know, I feel really passionate about sharing a lot of the unique situations and learnings that I've had in my life. I've been incredibly blessed with a, a lot of success and, and then also uh, incredibly blessed with a lot of uh, hard situations and through and, and, and some failure. And, and through all of it, I've learned. And I think what life is about is is giving back. It's the feedback loops back to uh, that, that we get in, in, in order to become better. And so really the moving target quote that you had there, John, is is really just one to emphasize that really uh, the day that we stop trying to get better in whatever ways we define better, it, that, that's when we've really, it's time to hang up our skates. And so I, I think it has nothing to do with seniority or age or where we are in our careers. You know, you can be 90 something years old and still be like, you know, trying to get better at, at different things. And I think that's that that hunger. I've, I've always said, you know, you're, you're only excellent if you know that you're never excellent enough. And that's kind of where the, the title came from. Yeah. But, you know, on going back to the high performing people that live in two places at once, um, I found that, you know, you, you plan to do your best job, you try to do your best job. And sometimes even when you're done and people say you did a great job, you still try to sometimes you don't try to, but sometimes you're still beating yourself up. Um, and maybe that's really what you're talking about, because you can learn from those situations and try to continue to get better. hundred percent. And so the two the two places at once, the first is foremost is be proud of who you are and what you've done and, and leaned into hard problems and and be satisfied. So that's the most important message. But then I think what differentiates truly uh, high-performing individuals and organizations is that you then take that uh, the the situation and and look at what you could have done differently. What could you have done better? You know, in the SEALs, when we came off of operations that could have been the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, we didn't talk about what went well. We spent all of our time talking about what didn't go well enough. 
you know, inertia is going to basically keep the uh, the good going in the right direction. It's not unlike I think you, you guys have closed bajillions of deals worth bajillions of dollars. You know, what's really interesting is, sure, you can diagnose the wins and say, what do we need to keep repeating? But by and large, you already have the skills that you need in order to keep repeating closing deals. What you want to do is think, well, what did I look at the deals that you lost and diagnose the loss and say, what did I learn? And that feedback and that incorporation in a very open way saying and, and having no ego and saying, I could have done something better. What was it? That to me is the biggest ingredient. And that's, I think, that the main point you're getting at, John. Yeah, yeah. You also describe a situation in the book when you and your team were in frigid cold weather in the mountains of Kosovo, and you coined the lesson that you learned from this, this sucks, let's stay here lesson, (laughs) which was a decision between struggling more and potential success. So can you walk the listeners maybe through that lesson and whether or not you've seen any of that in business situations also? Absolutely. Really quick version of the story is late 90s. We were in the SEALs working in very small units, four, six, eight people at a time to go out and take pictures uh, in the middle of the night of of, uh, of what was happening out in between in, in Kosovo. And um, and there were it was, there were complicated dynamics. It's beyond the scope of this conversation to describe those. What I'll simply say is that my, my team's job was to not be seen. And so we, there's uh, something that we call a natural line of drift. If you're out in the woods, you're naturally going to walk along the valley or railroad tracks. If you see railroad tracks, humans will, by, by definition, take the path of least resistance. And, um, and so, you know, in, in the SEALs, when it was time to lay up for three days, you know, we were, uh, you know, this particular operation, no exaggeration, you know, four feet of snow, it was snowshoes, it was, you know, very miserable below zero conditions. And, and, uh, you know, we came to this spot where it was about a 50 degree incline, or we had a natural line of drift where we could, we could, uh, you know, set up our, our observation locations. And, you know, what was really clear to me was that we needed to move up the hill. And it's, I'm not the only seal to think of this. This is like, we always figure out how do we do the thing that's going to make us least likely to be seen or compromised, et cetera. And so, you know, the the thing I said that night was, hey, guys, we got to move up the hill about 30 meters or so and sleep on the 50, 60 degree incline and, and set up camp in the in the much more miserable conditions. And I said, hey, look, this sucks. Let's stay here. <laughs> Cap, you want to add anything uh, to that? Or yeah. <clears throat> well, what, what I think is amazing about you talking about, it seems to be a common theme of, uh, amongst SEALs. We've had a, a couple on so far and this leaning into harder things um and taking the path and but being okay with failing because if you're still learning so couple things number one is that just a tenant of like the background that you come from from the seals that's the first question i have the second thing is Mike, how do you lead people to those things? So it's one thing to make an individual decision that says, okay, um, let's go 30 meters higher and it's going to free, it's going to suck even more up there. It's one thing to be able to do that for yourself. How do you do it 
with others and to help others go to a higher level or leaning into that suck. Sorry, that was a no, no, great, great, uh, great lead in, John. Let me take them in reverse order because the second thing is the quick, easy answer. It's simply shared values. When you have shared values and shared operating principles and shared, uh, you know, shared desired outcomes, then uh, the 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 other part gets very easy. You see, it, to me, in a team, the first thing that starts to break down a team is the perception that credit or blame will be disproportionately shared. You mm. see, not even, not, I mean, the perception of it, that's where the cracks begin. Long before the credit or the blame needs to be handed out, if the team perceives that it will be asymmetric, you've already lost as a team. You're not a team. And so you see in the SEALs that we very, very deeply win, know that we win or lose together and there is one uh, outcome for the team. And that's something that I've really tried to carry over in the business world. It's a little bit harder when you know you're you're in a, in, in these enterprises in in driving that. But to the the point you raised, uh, John, about the uh, the the what's endemic to the seals in, in, in at large. Look, I'd say the answer to your question is yes. That is a baseline trait for seals. It's what we need coming out of seal training. My class started with 120 guys and 19 graduated. Now, all 120 could have looked like they were be on the cover of a magazine, all jacked up and grr and, you know, and, oh, that guy must be able to carry a telephone pole or something. But like 101 of those people that look like that went away, you know? And so what do the 19 have in common? The 19 have in common a desire and a recognition that, that in my words, the more I hurt, the less you hurt as my teammate. And so the more I give to the team, then, uh, then the stronger the team is. And what's magical is that everybody on the team has the exact same mindset. You see in SEAL training, Mac, we, we stretch people beyond their limits and then we make them comfortable again. And then we stretch them beyond their limits again and we make them comfortable again. And the lesson sounds like very obviously, oh, just keep stretching your limits and you, you, you get, you, your limits get broader and broader. Totally right, but it also misses the larger point. Yeah, you you talk you talk about the order, you know, on the seal. It's the team first, then the teammate, and then yourself. Totally, team, teammate, self. And you see, in the way you can focus on the team first and your teammate, and then yourself, is because you get stretched so many times and you get made so uncomfortable that you get used to being uncomfortable. And so when you're highly uncomfortable, you can still be logical and talk to uh, and and communicate well and be focused on the mission at hand. And that's what really, you know, John drives the team teammate self saying. Well, one of the things that, you know, I think people have this misconception that, you know, the superhuman things that are done in these circumstances and also in business too, you know, doing hard things is is more about the physical nature of doing hard things and you talk about in your book that it's you know it is mostly the obstacles are mostly mental obstacles so first of all can you talk a little bit about that and then also for leaders listening can you help us understand how to help people discover that for themselves absolutely the I say unequivocally, the human has 
no idea what we're capable of. Like until you're really, really stretched and beyond your limits, you will, you will, I guarantee in hard situations, you'll rise to the occasion because that's what the human indomitable spirit is about, you know? And, and so it's just a, a, such a, um, such a truism that, that life is mental, not physical. Now we prepare the physical so that we can not need to worry about that in the moment that we can know that we can, you know, do the, whether it's lifting something or running a certain speed or carrying a certain amount of weight, that's just a, that's just a necessity. It's necessary, but insufficient. And so the, the sufficiency really starts with understanding the, uh, the, the clarity of vision and purpose and the mental aspect of, of staying, uh, bringing people together and, and achieving the common goals. You use the word leader. I, I do, I'd say, I, I love the expression. I, I think I made it up, which means I definitely didn't. But, uh, you know, le- leaders need to be able to lead and follow, but the art form really is knowing when to do which. Because most of the time, good leaders move to the back and let other people step up because that's where they grow. That's where they get to do the hard things. That's where they get to either you know, try something hard and either succeed or fail. But it's only failure if you fail and don't learn. If you've caused somebody to step up and they fail and learn, you've just made your organization better for the next time. Yeah, Mike, I you discussed dynamic subordination. I think that's what you, you called it in your book, where... On an effective team, everyone must seamlessly move forward and back depending upon the demands of the situation and the skills of the individual teammates. So anyone can be the leader at any time. Absolutely. And let's put it in deal terms, right? Like I I can't tell you how many times I've been kind of the, the senior person in the room, but most of the time I have way less knowledge about the specifics of the deal than a couple of experts in the room with me. And so, you know, whether it's a specific technology or a specific business function or a desired outcome, why do I want myself to be the one talking? I want the person who's got the best knowledge to be the one talking. And so my job is to to help people, uh, help the right person be talking at the right time, not to be talking myself. I like to say leaders gain authority by giving it away. And the other thing, the, the, another one is, is leaders don't need to make the best decision. Leaders need to make sure the best decision gets made. Right, right. I like both of those. Mike, in um, dynamic subordination, I understand completely when you have, you look around the room and there is, everybody's elite. And everybody is trained in a very, very elite way. Um, and so the way that ecosystem works is, um, there's no single point of failure, uh, which is awesome. Um, in business, you're, let me ask it a different way. So you come from that background where you're surrounded by that. And it's not that you're not surrounded by elite people in the business world, but there's a difference in the way that people have been trained there. They don't send seals out that are like, you know, don't have the training or what have you. So now we're in the business world. How does that dynamic subordination really come true? How do you encourage it as a leader for your teams? And how do you make sure you're not setting people up to fail? 
Great, great topic. I'm so glad you raised this because it's really important so that you people, listeners understand the full breadth of the conversation. You see, the, 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 the thing that's most important is understanding when do you have an absolute no-fail mission and when do you as an organization have a mission where it's okay to learn? You know, the, mm-hmm. those are sometimes different things. You know, what I say at VMware with 40,000 employees, the thing that I've told our employee base is that, um, you know, there's no single decision anybody will make is if they're on the right side of ethics and morals and the law and company policy that will crash the company. And so I encourage people to lean forward and make decisions and 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 just drive in a good dire- drive in a direction that they think the company needs to drive in because the inverse is paralysis. The inverse is in these large organizations people looking left and right and saying, "Well, gosh, I'm not sure whose decision it is." Right. Well, just make it your own. You know, and 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 find the right balance between coordination and collaboration across key people that you need to without over collaborating. And it's a little bit of an art form there, more art than science, but you can collaborate yourself to death or you can just you know, give a, a whipsaw quick answer from the hip and also not collaborate enough. And so every situation obviously unique, but the point is that the more that you can put people, other others on the field and get them moving forward and making those decisions, that's what's gonna ultimately enrich your organization over the long run. And so I always take the long view over the short view. I love that point. I want to stay on it just for a a moment more. Um, Helping people, encouraging people to be able to make decisions. uh, There's a couple of dynamics that have to be in play. First of all, your leadership team has to have a disposition that says it's okay for you to make decisions. So there has to be some, uh, I think you called it, Uh, dispersion of authority or power or something. So I want to hit on that, but then also giving, you know, helping people feel comfortable uh, that they can make the decision. So they have an authority to make a decision is one thing, but then not having the competence to make a decision. How do you, how do you support that in, in others in leaders and then in the people that they lead? Yeah. Cap, great question. And it's a culture point. And it's, it's what, so it starts with as a leader of an organization, what culture do you want your organization to have? For me, I want an organization where people are comfortable bringing up ideas and comfortable trying hard things. Those two things are so critically important. You know, a quick story in Afghanistan in 2000, what was it, 12 or so, we were going on a really complicated operation. The, the punchline is, that uh, we, we gave the, the mission brief and said, here's how we're going to go do this. And this new, I don't know, 22-ish year old SEAL in the back said, hey, sir, I think you're, I don't think your idea is the best idea. I think we've got, I got a better way to do this. Now, I'd been a SEAL for almost 20 years and this kid a SEAL for two minutes, you know? And, and, <laughs> and so I have, I have a really easy choice in that moment. I can say, hey, new guy, shut up and sit down. That's a stupid idea. Or I can say, hey, let's examine that. What are you thinking? What are you seeing? Tell me what's, what you're, what's going through your head. Let's surface that and consider it. Well, if you do the former, the one thing I'm sure of is that you'll never get a good idea, not just from that kid again, but from anybody in your organization. You're going to have a chilling effect on idea generation. And so the culture point starts with, do you make your company, your enterprise, your team comfortable bringing ideas forward? So, so even uh, so, so start with from a position as a leader. I start from a position 
of saying, why might I be wrong instead of why, might, why am I right? Because if I have that orientation, then I'm going to say, what am I missing? Because to me, all of the opportunity and all the risk for a business is in that unknown, unknown quadrant. And so I've got a certain way of seeing the world. The only way to see the world differently is to have people who don't think like me do things like that young SEAL did and say, hey, here's a different way to look at this. And so that culture is the most important point. Uh, I hope that kind of gets at your question, Cap. Holy smokes, that's so powerful. If you just sit with there, it's like there's an ego thing involved as I'm listening to it is how often are you really, really comfortable saying to yourself, why might I be wrong in a moment of truth? Why might I be wrong versus, you know, going through the roll of, you know, the file folders in your brain saying, why am I absolutely right? I mean, that's a, that's a higher brain function, John McMahon. <laughs> that's a higher brain. It certainly is. Talking well, about. Can I, can I share one other point? Sure. On this? Go so for it. A core yeah. on top of that is um, why don't people try hard things in an organization? And it's a, it's yeah. so you can have the culture that we just described, but then there's also uh, a little bit of a personal aspect of like not wanting to step forward and try hard things and, 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 and classically failing. And that boils down to ego also. Like if you think about it, you know, to me, all of our parents or whoever raised us paid money to coaches of either sports teams or instruments or something to tell us we weren't good enough as kids to, you know, kick straighter or play the instrument better. And then as we get to be adults, we are afraid to not do things right. And, and the sooner you can get rid of that feeling, then uh, that's when you see people trying those hard things. We're, we're, so helping people lose the discomfort associated with trying hard things and not classically succeeding is, 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 is what separates the high-performing elite teams from just the teams. And that comes from leaders celebrating people who tried hard things but didn't succeed, but they learned, saying, hey, thank you for trying this really hard thing. We're better. You're better as a person. We're better as a company because of what you just did. And celebrating those person people, that really creates a culture uh, cap that ties to your your point. And, and Yeah. Last one on this, Johnny, and because I, I really want to hit this one home. There's the it. bias that we're kind of born with. I heard you talking about this uh, on um, I heard you speaking about it publicly where you said, you know, we learn. So we, when we're younger, we learn. We're open to the concept of learning. Mentally, we say we don't know what we need to know, so we learn. And then there's a period in our lives where we show what we learn, and it's totally ex acceptable. And we have positions of power where we can show what we learn. And then the interesting one, Mike, that you're talking about here is, is this – is the confidence and the humility to be able to say that it's a loop. It's not, I've learned, I've, I'm showing, and I have that confidence. I need to show my confidence. I think what you're saying is there's no end to it. It's a constant loop. Is Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And this, see, the thing is, as the leader of an organization, I don't, I don't need any individual credit. How the organization performs is how I mark myself to market. And so the way to make the organization perform as well as possible is to be in that third phase of, the, of that, that, that last part of the loop there where you're so comfortable being in front of a room and saying, hey, I, I think I was wrong. Let's go, a let's go the direction you're saying or having that humility is what will lead to the best outcomes to the organization. And so I do think it, it creates a self-fulfilling 
cycle. And Johnny, that's the point. The last point here that I wanted to make was this, that it's so apparent that, you know, SEALs focus on outcomes, not outputs. And, um, and that's something that really transcends itself in, in personal lives and business life. A- any additional comments on that, Mike, on the, the really, what you're really talking about here is being more comfortable in the outcome and focusing on the outcome versus how you get there. You know, a lot of these lessons come from, you know, 20 years in the SEALs, 10 years in the private sector. And the reason that, that what you're describing is something that I very vividly remember over the course of my 20-year SEAL career, recognizing that a lot of people will say, uh, hey, sir, I wrote 3,000 intelligence reports, or hey, sir, we mm-hmm. drove 4,000 miles on, on these roads. And, yeah. and I'm like, you know what? Those are all outputs. I don't care about that. What I care about is uh, what did that achieve? And, and saying, and did that, was that part of the overall vision and mission? And so the, I joke around the L and steel stands for lazy uh, because <laughs> we find the, 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 the most efficient path of the goal. And so what I, so how do I'd much rather have the person on my team that knows how to spend one calorie to achieve the outcome than to go spend a bajillion calories and write bajillions of reports and drive over all the miles I want the person who's more creative and clever and who also is comfortable saying, hey, I only did one unit of work and then I laid on my couch, but I achieved the objective. Great. Great. I've always called that confusing activity with accomplishment. You know, it's not how many times you took a shot on the goal. It's whether or not you took one shot and it went in. Right. So, Mike, let's switch up a little bit and talk about um, some characteristics of people that you've seen. So I I found this really interesting in your book because Johnny and I talk a lot about recruiting and we want to usually recruit somebody that's highly intelligent. You know, they have drive and motivation, you know, coachable, adaptable, integrity, those types of things. And on intelligence, you said the smartest seal isn't the one with the greatest raw intelligence. It's the one who has the best and quickest reaction to a problem. I thought that was a really good twist on it. Well, it's, it's the, I believe that's true because no matter how much raw information you have, you're very unlikely to have the raw information that's directly needed to solve the problem at hand. Usually you need to indirectly go achieve and uh, gather information in order to make a decision. And so for me, I'd rather have the seal who can react quickly because that's going to be the differentiation and that, that, that drives the outcome that we talked about just a minute ago. So very much, I, I guess it's kind of a circular when I say my words very much resonate with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other thing is uh, I found interesting. You said we are who we are. We are who we are at our worst. And what you meant or it's read, said, I read in the book was it's not the 99% of life when people are comfortable that you find out their character. It's the, 0.1% when they're in discomfort. It's so true. The So, you know, when we're, it's really easy to do the right thing when we're comfortable and life is easy. You know, wh- when things really start falling apart, that's when you see someone's true character and values. You know, the, uh, and it could be anything. It could be the deal that didn't happen. It could be the quarter that you missed. It could be the 
the car accident that you came upon on the, on the highway and you're the only car there, you know, like how are these situations in life? You know, what do you do? Do you, um, do you stay calm and cool and collected and measured? Or do you all of a sudden decide that now because things got hard, you have an excuse to mistreat people or to do, or even worse, to violate your ethics and your morals or, or, um, or, or break the law even like the, there's, so you see when things get hard, that's what people are really made of. And that's, in my opinion, as a seal and the seal kind of mindset, those are the opportunities to step forward and prove to yourself what you're made of. And then what happens in life after you have a lot of those opportunities is you realize, uh, you realize the, the foundationally what's actually important in life. And it's, it's about character and values and integrity. And you, and when you can reorient hard situations as opportunities, it just changes the frame. Uh, One earlier, you were saying, how do you think about taking care of people when it's hard? Well, it's a lot easier to when that team teammate self mentality is drives the uh, ability to say if uh, to set aside personal discomfort and say, what do I need to do that best contributes to overall success of the team right now? And if you can keep those questions in mind, that's where you will drive the ultimate outcomes for your team. Yeah. And going back to the calm breeds calm part, do you think that that's something that people can learn from a calm leader? Absolutely. And so that's one of the reasons that I started teaching that to younger SEALs was like to, to say, look, when, when things get hard, if I lose my mind, you're like, you're going to lose your mind 2X or 10X more than me. And so how do I keep my, my organization focused on all focusing all energy on achieving the objective? It's because it's very easy to get emotionally distracted from uh, a situation or to place energy in non-productive directions. And so, you know, when you're, when you're in charge of a SEAL platoon or a team that's in a gunfight or multiple gunfights, if you're not, if you're allowing negative energy or thoughts to be uh, enter into the, the cycle of thinking that are not productive, all you're doing is degrading your ability to uh, to to or you're you're reducing your chances to survive the situation and and so that's why it is a treat to your point it's a training it is training it is I wasn't necessarily like born Mister Calm Leader not at all like I got put in a bunch of really hard situations from a bunch of you know experienced seals before me that said hey kid you know here you know we're going to throw you into the into the frying pan and into the fire and we're going to see how you act and then you know i do some things right and i'd probably do more things wrong but we talked about it afterwards and that that growth uh, uh having people say wait a minute here's what you need to be doing in the moment and in the common theme, one of the common themes, always being calm and hyperlogical and able to to uh, to drive common outcomes for the team is is the one of the key components of leadership. And what do you think helps there? Do you think do you focus on the outcome to try to stay calm, or how about you yourself when you find that the situation is really hectic, lots of stuff is happening around you? Where do you find that your mind goes in order to stay calm? I'm not sure I know the answer to that. It's a good question. Um, I find in hard moments 
my brain slows down and I see lots of possibilities in front of me. And so uh, I, I start with what the desired outcome is. And then I see all the things that are in front of me and all the things that could go wrong. And, uh, and then all I'm doing is, is saying, okay, then I, I think about resources. What resources do I have to apply to the problem? A mistake that a lot of people make is that they think that they are the only resource on the problem. And they also don't see right. a problem as, as the time dimension of the problem because people tend to overestimate or, oh, excuse me, over-index on the problem of the moment without mm. thinking about how that problem can get exponentially worse or better over the coming minutes, days, or hours, hours or days or whatever. And so where my mind is also going and kind of the adding the time dimension is thinking, what's going to go wrong uh, and what do I need to be prepared for ahead of time? And... Um, and then just making calculated bets that are are um, are uh, excuse me. Well, I say calculated bets, but I forgot to also say uh, getting more resources on the problem. You know, how do I bring in others who have more experience or more hands on deck or more ways to think about something? Or how do you change the whole definition of the game that you're playing? And that's really our job as seals is to never fight fair. I like to say. I don't mean that. And please don't. I don't want your readers to miss or your audience to mishear that. It's not about ethics or morals or standards. It's it's about just tactics. How do we outsmart the opponent? And it's no different in business. How do we look at our industry competitors and say, how do we stay a step or 10 steps ahead based on where we're going? Yeah. And you talked about making decisions um, and it, just now. And in your book, you talked about for you, it was a simple graph. On one axis is the value of information you have on hand to help make the decision. And on the other axis, as you pointed out before, is time. So at some point, the additional value of more information won't be worth the cost of waiting for it, right? And that's when, as you pointed out earlier, you got to make a decision. You got to make it now. That you, 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 it was perfectly um perfectly paraphrased the and so the point that what i would say is the first decision in decision making is not the decision the first decision in decision making is when you need to make your decision and so that gra that 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 uh curve if you will of getting better inputs and when to make your decision because the time starts costing more than the marginal utility of the information coming in that uh that is really a function of of um of surrounding yourself with people who don't think like you and getting more faster and better signal into your decision-making. And then, um, and then understanding that the things change through time. And so, you know, I, I in the book, I won't spoiler alert, but the, uh, you know, there were a few stories around things that, um, you know, that I saw in the moment that I saw a certain way, but somebody else saw a different way. And, you know, in decision-making, the important thing is to recognize if I'm the leader of the organization, the organization's decision isn't automatically my input. You see, I need to separate myself. I'm an input and I'm the decider. And it's very important to tease those two apart. Otherwise, you will fall into the trap of saying, okay, my input is always the decision. No, I have other inputs to get. You know, what does Cap and Mac think about this, this deal? You know, and so, oh, how are you seeing it? What's the pros, the cons? Which way should we do this? You know, how should we, what are the commercials here? How should, what about the terms and conditions? And, you know, how do we think about all those things? And so while, like, as you, you all know, 
a deal isn't just some number of some agreement. There's there's so many things that go into it. Really, it's about trust. Any deal is about trust. And so ultimately, as you're thinking about selling trust back and forth among friends and, and colleagues and professionals, it's no different in the SEALs. It's it's just really thinking about the the way you make decisions. Yeah, and you talked about that in your book on how to get your team to be confident enough um, to help, you know, give inputs into the decision. You said, you know, confidence and humility are not on, not different points on the same line. You can be confident and have something to contribute and at the same time recognize that you're not the only one who has value to add, right? So that, that's, that only comes from the leader trying to build confidence in their people to be able to give a decision and still remain humble. Yeah, it goes back to the culture point we were talking about earlier. And let me bring it to life. As the commander of a task force in Afghanistan, I personally was, my, my organization was responsible for uh, dropping bombs, air, air to ground over 1,100 times. And that was my decision. My personal decision was when to say yes or no was Mike Hayes's call. And, um, and that's a decision you never, ever, ever want to get wrong. I'm really proud to say we didn't ever, we never harmed anyone we shouldn't have harmed. And, um, and the SEAL's job is just to stop bad people from doing bad things to good people. You don't, any, any, so how did we never harm anyone we shouldn't have harmed? Well, uh, I'm not embarrassed to say that out of, you know, 1,100 times when my organization made this decision, we didn't always follow my input. And, and what that means now, I don't know if it was 990 or whatever times, a couple times I remember getting other input and having at one time my lawyer who was not a SEAL, who was just a smart individual. And he said, hey, sir, did you think about this, this and this? And I was like, hmm, no, uh, what do you, tell me more. What are you thinking? And these are these are you know situations where there are SEALs in a gunfight or on the ground that are like, we need a bomb now or whatever. And you, and the thing is, you can't rush to uh, make the wrong decision. And sure enough, you know, this particular night, I vividly remember saying, "Yeah, you know what? Sorry, uh, the, the the platoon commander. Um, sorry, we're not going to drop. I'm not clearing a bomb right now. You'll need to pull back and 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 you know, pull pull back and go a different direction, basically." And I know that would have been frustrating if you're in the field, but you know, once that SEAL platoon left, we still had unmanned aerial vehicle footage over the target. And about 20 minutes later, we saw something like 20 women and children walk out of this building. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, my God, like if I would have done what I personally thought, it thought uh, we we probably would have dropped a bomb and unfortunately have, have, have harmed a bunch of people that we didn't want to harm. Now, I, I take a lot of solace in saying, well, I, I also designed the system so that I could get other inputs and see things different ways. And so while my input was wrong. Uh, my my system was right. And, and ultimately that humility of, of listening to somebody else. And like we said earlier, starting with what am I, why might I be wrong instead of why I'm right is ultimately why 20 women and children in Afghanistan are alive today. Yeah. And also, like you said, you're only one input and you're also the decision maker. So you get you, you have both viewpoints. I just want to do uh, one more question, Johnny, before turn a little bit more towards uh, leadership. And Mike, uh, this always comes up like when you're hiring people, and this is something that 
um, you pointed out in your book, and it comes up in business all the time, that when you were making decisions about people, you keep in mind that someone with great intrinsic skills can be put in charge of anything, and they'll find a way to figure it out. And I've always believed the same thing. Whereas I think in business, I'd say 80% of the time, you don't find a lot of organizations that actually believe that. I think you're right. And I think it's unfortunate. I think that uh, when you just throw uh, people, I have found are generally very, very responsive. When you say, I need to put more responsibility on your shoulders and I would love to see you step up. And, and the, but the corollary to that or, or uh, highly necessary is for the leader to also understand the career goals of the individual. You see, because to me, that leadership, like you're talking about, John, is 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 um, is critical to know what motivates that 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 employee, that person, that teammate. Is it more money? Is it a promotion? Is it learning? Is it mission? Is it quality of life and being able to go home and take an extra three weeks off? Or what is it? Because we all work for different reasons. And so understanding how, how can I take the company's goals and the goals for what's going on and connect the extra responsibility and the need for more outcome or more, more production and say, here's why, why and how it will be good for you. And leadership translates the organizational needs to the career aspirations and goals and, and not in, fa in fallow, hollow kind of ways, but in real ways. The number of times I've said that to people and said, look, I will help you achieve your goals as a leader, you can only get away, you can't get away with making those statements and then not backing it up. Your, right. your, your reputation will will quickly, you'll get what you deserve very quickly over time, which is a bad reputation. Yeah. I've just found that in business, a lot of times people get labels like he or she is a this or a that, they're an SE or they're an or account manager or they're in finance or they're that. Whereas I've always believed like, you said earlier that if somebody's really smart, has the right skills, super motivated, they're going to, you can put them in a different role and they'll help figure it out. I, I mean, look, that's what Pat Gelsinger did with me at VMware. What do I know about? Pro I've spent two years now in a product organization. I've never been in a product organization. I can't, at age 49, I came to VMware, which is, you know, the, one of the world's preeminent software makers, you know, yes. you know and, and whether it's infrastructure as a service or, you know, app dev, app modernization, end user compute, you know, some of the, the, uh, uh, and, and so, how do you, how does Pat Gelsinger, of course, he's now at Intel, but as a CEO, but how does Pat say, hey, I think this guy is going to be able to help us out and, and, uh, and put somebody on the field. And that's what I've done my whole life is just leaned into hard situations where I haven't really known. And that's where, if you're willing to bet on yourself, that's where the growth comes from. I've learned so much in two years at VMware. I, I'm such a better person than I was two years ago. And so hopefully at the end of every six months or every year, all of us are saying that. And if any of us are not saying that, then it's a sign that we're not in the right organization or, or we're not um, being true to who we really need ourselves to be. Yeah. Agree. Cap, you have, you want to add 10? Yeah, I do. I, so we we're bouncing around this decision-making and leaning into hard things and, and really the disposition that it takes to do that. And one of the things that I've heard on, um, trying to become better at doing this, and I think the SEALs believe in this, um, is 
focusing on what you can control versus what you cannot control. And Mike, I want to talk to you about a very fine line. So I can grasp that easily. If somebody said to me in the moment of truth, in decision-making, in action that needs to be taken, when you focus on what you can control, um, I believe it's much easier in life and, and it's less emotional because I, if I, I'm worrying about stuff that I can't control many times in my own personal life. And it helps me to say, I think it's kind of like the three foot view. It's like, what can I control? But then also sometimes I feel like I could potentially be limiting myself because am I falling into a rut and saying, well, I can only control this. So therefore I can't innovate. Therefore I can't. And I knew you'd get this question <laughs> the way that I'm, the way that I'm asking it. Could you kind of walk us through your experience with that? And then how do you encourage people at times you need to focus on what you control, but in other times you probably need to expand your thinking on what you can. Control. I love this. I love the way you've raised it. I've done lots of conversations and no one has ever said it that way. The, um, I think of, I certainly see the dichotomy, of course, between what you can control and what you can't control. The thing, and even in my book, I might not have written this well enough, but the, the thing that I really feel strongly is at the same time, constantly test what you think you can't control and see if you can control it and have that mindset. Like this will sound incredibly arrogant. I don't mean it this way, but my mindset is that I can control almost anything. You know, the only question yeah. in life is how much work it'll take or if, if I can imagine it and if I can imagine it, how much work it's going to take, you know, and so and that's where that's both a blessing and a curse, because a lot of times I think I can control something and I start running hard against it. And I don't actually know that I can't control it until I try and haven't. And so that's why I, I would say, uh, you know, Cap is is. Uh, it's important for people in those moments to not to not stagnate as you're you're potentially describing is to also always try to control more and that, not in a like power kind of way but just you know like influence and in making a positive difference and creating more value in people's lives and kind of way and so that i think is really important because if you if you start limiting yourself uh and just too quickly push the i can't control that button then you're going to really uh, not flourish and achieve your potential. I like the way that you've, like in your book, I think you kind of call that a little bit the run and renovate, where in the moment you have to run, but then being open to an outcome, judging and assessing an outcome from that thought that created that outcome uh, and then, you know, being open to, you know, innovate, renovate, uh, it, it, do you think, is that kind of what you're talking about in your book a little bit? hundred percent. It, it's because you have to, you have to, in an enterprise or the, or the seals or in business, you have to run the organization the way it is. And at the same time, you're constantly in a transformation phase. Any organization that's not transforming every minute of the day is an organization that's dying, and so, uh, and so how do you, you, you have to spend energy between the run and the transform, run and renovate. And so that, that's what as hard as a leader is, where do you spend your time? Like right now at VMware, we're moving to a software as a service business model, which everybody has seen, you know, Adobe and Microsoft and others go through. And, uh, and so I can get very much sucked into how we run our business right now. And, and I can, and also from a budget perspective, candidly, 
you know, how, how do I, I, I drew a, a line saying, I want 80% of our discretionary spend to be going where we need to go, not where we are. And what happens mm. is some of the people who are in the need, the paperclip and the chewing gum uh, for systems or various things on the where we are. But if we spend too much of our energy on where we are, we're never going to get to where we need to be. And that's been my mm. that's been my challenge in my current role is, is how to navigate that run and renovate. How do you get people to on that topic in that run and renovate in where we're going versus where we are? There has to be some assessment. And I've heard you talk about regardless of the outcome, whether we win or not, we have to have everybody everybody's evaluating and assessing when we lose or when we fail in some way. How do you instill in an organization from, you know, in today's business world, how do you encourage people to assess no matter what for the renovation, no matter what, how do you do that? It's a, it is a challenge. The the reason you're asking it is because it's hard. And, um, yeah. And I, th- one of the things I, I find effective is first to pull people up and have them understand that the mission is larger than the quarter at hand. You know, and, and so it, it's, but at the same time, we all have different roles to play. Now, our salespeople who are on the front lines, I, I need 99 or 95 or something like that percent of their energy uh, focused on, on the quarter. Now, to be clear, that's not my sphere of influence. I'm not part of our go to market team. So I don't mean to overspeak or overreach here. But what I'm saying is, it, when I think just very simplistically, People who are are putting up the numbers quarter to quarter, leave them alone, let them do their thing. And then how can I best support the organization by helping get us to the, to the, um, to, to push through the change that we need to push through to get there. And so it's a lot of it goes to roles and responsibilities and, and, and being clear, clear about that. And you talk about in your book, this, uh, the three tenets of success. And I would, I would say that they're also kind of three tenets of leadership that we're talking about here. You talk about mission, meaning, and impact. And I'm sure that that kind of falls under the umbrella of being able to do what you've just described. Very much. You know, when I'm in my kind of town halls or whatever, I, I, I actually like using the framework of GDP. And, you know, we, we know everybody remembers from Econ 101, GDP is just labor times productivity, and that equals the total economic output of either a nation or the globe. Well, you know, it's we can it can be really sexy to talk about seals and, blah, and Hollywoodish or whatever. It's like in the grand scheme of things, honestly, who cares? What's actually sexier is GDP, because the more economic value we create for the nation and for the globe, the more we pull people up. The more we pull societies up, and the more we can we can we can buy more healthcare, education, seals, we can pay down debt, et cetera. So the people who are creating GDP for this nation are the people who are making and globe are the people who are actually improving society. And um, mm. and and so we all have different roles to play in that. And so the the what can happen in whether it's 40,000 employees at VMware or I would bet you any any enterprise is that you're, the people in the organization can kind of get lost in the day-to-day and not see the bigger picture that they're contributing to. It's very easy. We make a bunch of products that we basically sell to other businesses, and a lot of our people have no idea how other enterprises use our products to go run their business models and do what they do and create value in the world. And so it's really, I, I love to kind of help pull people up and see that bigger mission and picture. Outstanding. That, uh, you know, Rachel and our uh, 
uh, our uh, production crew, I would like to take that segment right there and just kind of highlight that was that was really really powerful. It's uh, all those three together are really uh, so important, and then people get lost on where they are in that. And again, focusing on the outcome. I loved how you said that with GDP, Johnny. Hey, Mike, what I'd like to do is transition and talk a little bit about the nonprofit charitable organization that you started named 1162. I don't know if that's exactly how you would say it. Is it 1162? Maybe you talk about the genesis of the name, uh, you know, for when the seals were created. And then can you talk about how you support, you know, Gold Star families through that organization? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, first of all. So, you know, like I said, I'm 51 years old. I was in the SEALs for 20 years. Every SEAL of my era has buried about 70 teammates. And, um, and you know, I've, and I've, I've personally, you know, buried many friends who uh, I'm as, you know, as close as my brother. And I'm very, very close to my actual brother. And, and it's, it's very, very hard. And it's, it, it doesn't get easier through time. Uh, and so the, um, you know, I think to those who much has been given, much is expected is how we should be living our lives. And I, I've been very fortunate where, you know, where, where um, I, I've, I've had these experiences and, and I'm able to write this book and I donate all the profits from the book to the nonprofit that you, you just described. And uh, the 1162 Foundation, 1162 is the day that JFK started the Navy SEALs. And uh, and then not lost on that also, 1-1, January 1st is always a, a renewal. And so I think like, what are the things that, that we as a nonprofit can quietly be doing to go, to go help uh, Gold Star families, which are families of fallen service members, to be renewed and to be recognized? And, and uh, you know, many nonprofits uh, work very overtly. I have no website, no fanfare. I have no full-time employees, just a bunch of volunteers from a, a, a from a organi- an organization that is candidly registered out of my house. Uh, and, and with that, we've paid off six mortgages for women uh, mm-hmm. whose, whose husbands aren't here, whether they died in battle or to suicide, died by suicide after the fact. Uh, you know, it's, it's a real, real struggle. Uh, I don't know when you'll be airing this exactly, but uh, in seven days from today, I'm flying down to, uh, to Virginia Beach and I'll, um, I'll, be, uh, I'll be sharing with a woman who has no idea right now that in seven days, her mortgage will be paid off. And it's going to, wow. it's, 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 it's going to lighten, you know, these conversations with, when you get to sit across, have a coffee with your, your friend's wife, widow who, uh, you know, who paid the ultimate sacrifice and you get to share, you know, how awesome he was and, and, and bring that person back to life a little bit. Those are special conversations. But then when you get to look the, the lady in the eye and tell her she doesn't have a mortgage anymore, it's, it's honestly, God, it's just, it's indescribable. Uh, and so that's what, that's what I do. That's what I do with, uh, my, that's why I appreciate the, you asking, I appreciate the help for the audience please jump on Amazon or wherever you buy books and grab never enough and, and tell your friends and family. And I'm, it's been out for over a year now, so it's not very expensive. In fact, over veterans day weekend, they dropped it to like three bucks on Kindle or something, you know? but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, which is great. You know, I, I, my whole goal in life is to raise the conversation, raise the awareness. And then fortunately, literally it, it raises money that, that pays off mortgages for these very, very deserving 
uh, Gold Star widows and, and children. Yeah, Mike. So we're going to put a link to 1162 or 1162 in the show notes and also a link to your book, Never Enough, a Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. And Mike, you know, I know our audience got a lot out of it. I got a tremendous amount by reading your book. And I'm really grateful for you taking the time with all the things you have going on to spend some time with our listeners. Johnny's going to, you know, close us out here. Yeah, Mike, I, um, holy smokes, I got chill bumps. Just, uh, we, uh, we probably should have started with what we just ended with. Uh, and then everything in the middle would have just been such, you know, just, just gravy. But I'll just reiterate again, the foundation 1162 foundation, never enough by Mike case, uh, brother, we thank you for, uh, coming on. We thank you for your service. We thank you for what you're doing for the men and women who have served, um, just, just a, uh, wonderful, wonderful experience. We can't thank you enough. And, and, uh, we wish nothing but massive success for your foundation. Thank you, John and John. It's a real pleasure. And it's I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be able to spend time with each of you, your legends. And uh, and thank you for sharing your time with me today, too. I, I deeply appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to another edition of Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 